Hey there, homebrew con conners. A quick word before we start the show. As this is being released Wednesday, June 27th, it's going to be time for us to party with our sponsor Brewcraft USA at Culmination Brewing Company. Come join us for a rocking 80s theme party with trivia, music, and lots of really tasty beer and food trucks to sample. We sign books on Thursday at 1pm and then give a talk at 2pm. On Friday, you can catch a live version of the main show at 1pm in the Expo Center at Brewcraft USA's booth. Now, on to the show. Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. On this episode, I sit down with Jennifer Talley, the author of Session Beers, and talk about the world of Session Beer and how she became an expert by necessity. We'll dive into each of our favorite Session Beers and how to best make them. So sit back, grab something that you love to drink. It's time for a knowledgeable session. But first, a message from our sponsors. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, a.k.a. the National Homebrewers Conference, a.k.a. the best beer event in the world. This year, HomebrewCon heads to Portland, Oregon, a.k.a. Beervana. HomebrewCon features brewing seminars, a trade show with the latest homebrew technology, and fun nighttime events that celebrate the awesome community of homebrewers. HomebrewCon is June 28th through June 30th. Visit homebrewcon.org to register. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Brew Files. Uh, you know, this is a special HomebrewCon week episode. As this is actually being released, I have, I'm in Portland, Oregon, getting ready to throw down at the Brewcraft uh, USA party in Culmination Brewing Company. So come see me and see what sort of glorious 80s nonsense I'm up to. I, all I can promise is there's the mustache involved. But that's uh, a topic for a different time. 
Uh, right now, I'm on the line with uh, Jennifer Talley. Jennifer Talley is, of course, the author of Session Beer from Brewer's Publication. And you guys know just how much we love Session Beer. So, Jen, why don't you say hi to everybody? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on your show, Drew. <laughs> well, thank you for coming. It's always nice to have good guests. We have to start, I think, where we always have to start, which is how did you get into good beer? And then finally, how did you get into brewing? Well, um, I was really young. It was uh, 1991. And I loved going to concerts around California. I grew up in Southern California. And when I would go to these concerts, specifically Grateful Dead concerts, there was always this vending that occurred outside. And they would have big ice chests full of just tasty Sierra Nevadas. They would have um, Sammy Smith's Oatmeal Stout. And I started, you know, you know, buying beers after concerts at a very young age and then started homebrewing. Um, when I say young age, of course, legal drinking age, but, um, uh, but, but I started homebrewing about the same time. Actually, I started homebrewing, I have to admit, about a year before I turned 21. And I just absolutely loved the fantastic, fantastic beer. And then when I started homebrewing, I really loved the process. So I got my first brewing job at Squatters Pub Brewery in 1991. Uh, started out about four dollars and seventy five cents an hour. Woo. Yeah, you know, and uh, I started as an assistant, and I did. I really just had a uh, maybe seven or eight homebrews under my belt, and spent the next twenty years of my life um, honing my craft at Squatters. And Squatters is in Salt Lake City, right? It is. It's in Salt Lake City, Utah, and leads up to why the Brewers Association um, asked me to write the book on session beer because for those twenty years, I brewed only four percent ABV beer. Beer laws in Utah are, well, they're sort of strange. Yeah. You know, you can brew anything you want as long as you put it in a can or a bottle. But when it comes to draft, they only allow 4% alcohol by volume on draft. So actually, at the end of the 20 years, probably about 15 years in, I started brewing higher alcohol beer. Higher alcohol to us Utahns was over 4%. Um, and then I had a little hand bottler, and, and I was doing sour beers at that time. Um, started that in about 2007, and I was corking and caging them and doing it on a little guy, gravity feed filler. Um, so, you know, I, I did start making beers, you know, above 4% ABV about 15 years in, but the majority of my brewing, the majority of my designed beers at Squatters were very, very low alcohol um, session beers, really. Well, and I remember, I think you went to Head of Barley Wine. I think you guys had a Barley Wine. I just remember one time when I was in Salt Lake City, I went to the state liquor store to actually pick up some stronger craft beer. It was, it was sort of a, it was, it was a different take on things. Yeah, exactly. It's a, just a little bit different world out there. They didn't have a, when I was there, um, Last, I left in 2011, but they uh, didn't have refrigeration in the state liquor stores, which was, which I saw as a major problem. Now, I can't – that might have changed because I know there was a big push by the brewing community. And then I, it, from what I hear from a lot of the brewers out in Utah, it seems like those draft laws are going to be changing really soon. A lot more brewing companies are going in Utah. So um, I think it's they're finally going to be catching up to speed and um, relaxing the liquor laws is, is, is what – what I've heard through the grapevine. Now, obviously, with these sorts of restrictions of having to be under 4%, what sort of changes for you as a brewer under operating under those guidelines as opposed to, you know, basically everywhere else in America where the sky is the limit almost? Well, you have to understand, Drew, that I started as a brewer under those guidelines. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're born and you can't see the color blue, you don't, you don't really miss it because you never experienced it in the first place. So yeah, I would travel around the country a little bit and drink 
beers that were over 4%. But, you know, I spent a lot of time in Utah mountain biking, you know, building my life there. I sent myself back to college and ended up, ended up gra- graduating uh, University of Utah. So I, I really wasn't traveling internationally like I am now. Um, I would go to Great American Beer Festival, of course, and World Beer Cup. But for the most part, my life in brewing and beer was lived in the 4% world. So I didn't really miss it or, you know, I basically just kind of turned that frown upside down and learned to do the best I could with 14 of my taps to differentiate all the beers on tap and make them all taste really great. And I would pick styles that were very conducive for session beers like Schwartz beer, Vienna, Alt beer, Kolsch, uh, dry Irish stout, you know, I wouldn't try to make a a beer like a Maybach and call it a session. I just didn't, I just didn't make my box until I put it in a, you know, a bottle. So it, for me, I didn't really bother me. Did you ever like, you know, really kind of until you got to that end, I, I guess, was there ever like that desire sometimes where you go, you know, it'd be nice to make a 7% IPA. Oh gosh, of course. But you want to know what I really wanted to make more than anything. I just wanted 5% because that is probably my favorite percentage of alcohol. I love 4.8 to 5% to 5.2. I mean, I think that's just a beautiful alcohol range. The flavors there, the mouthfeel, the body, it's, it's, um, you just, you know, you can drink several of them. Um, that 5% alcohol range is just, is, is my personal favorite. So yes, oftentimes I was like, gosh, darn it. I mean, really, does it have to be four? Couldn't it just be five? You know? <laughs> and, and then, like I said, when the, as the years progressed and as I grew up as both an adult and a brewer under those guidelines or let's say restrictions, the desire became greater and greater. Okay. Uh, the more I, okay, I've done this. I've brewed this style. I've brewed this style. I've made this. I've done this. Gosh, darn it. I want to make an Imperial style because I never have. So, well, I guess, and that's when I got my little two head bottler in there and started figuring out how to legally make higher alcohol beer and, you know, hand packaged it. And then would, and then we were able to, um, the state law change, we were able to have a packaging store is what it was called legally, a state packaging store within our brew pub. So, you know, some, some laws changed to allow for us to keep the beer cold, um, not have to transfer it to the state and sell it right there to the customer at the table and also sell it to the customer to go. Um, and also, you know, keep the fresh and freshness and quality there. So I, I did start getting frustrated probably about, you know, 14, 15 years in. And that's when I started making um, some higher alcohol beers and, and, and bottling them. I remember when I, when I would spend some time in Salt Lake City, cause I had a job that worked with call centers in Salt Lake and I would end up at, at squatters in downtown. And, and I'll tell you, what, I mean, even though, yeah, it was like 4% beer. I never, I never felt like I was lacking in terms of the flavor. It, it, it was always, Thank you. yeah, I mean, it was always, it was nice to always see that big selection and, you know, actually have a kind of a chance to explore a lot of the flavor. I think there was one point in time, I think I went through all the taps and walked away, went back to my hotel going, I still feel strangely sober. <laughs> I don't think you're the first person that has ever um, felt that way. <laughs> well, so now you've obviously you've left squatters and you, you referenced to doing a little bit of uh, uh, travel. So what are you up to now in the, in the beer world? You know, I, I went and visited, I worked for a couple of breweries um, after that just to get different experience in different brewing cultures and on different systems, which was really important to me to grow as a brewer. So I, you know, I spent some time at Russian River. I spent some time at Craft Brew Alliance on a really large, really large system. Um, and both were wonderful experiences. Um, 
ultimately, I really wanted to find a great place to settle down so my children could uh, go to the same elementary school, build my uh, family life in a, in a community we all enjoyed, and we love Northern California. So we came up to Gold Country to Grass Valley. Um, I worked for Auburn Alehouse for uh, three and a half years and did some uh, good work there and working on um, a lot of the beers that he had in place and just kind of refining everything. And then um, decided to kind of go it, you know, to, to try to try to build something myself. So I'm currently part owner of 1849 Brewing Company, and we're getting ready to open up, uh, looks like about September. And it's a 15-barrel system, and we're going to have a restaurant, a little brew pub, not real big. I hate to say brew pub because it just doesn't have that classic brew pub feel. It's more, it's, it's kind of a tap room slash restaurant, fun atmosphere, beer garden. And we're also going to be doing beers to to go out the door and keg. And uh, at some point, we'll we'll probably ask the can van to come over and, and start canning a little bit. But one step at a time. Are we sticking in that sessionable range, or are we or are we going more broad now? Well, I'm definitely going to you know make session beers because I love session beers, you know. Um, but we're, I'm def- I'm, I'm going to broaden the per the landscape of the taps. And make, you know, you know, lots of different types. You know, I, I'm not going to peg us anything. We're not, not going to be a session beer brewery. We're not going to be a high alcohol beer brewery. We're just going to, or an all IPA brewery. You know, I've always liked to make beers, different beers and educate people. And brewers get bored. So they want to make, you know, German style beers. They want to make, you know, French, Belgian style beers. They want to, you know, make a, you know, American inspired English beers and, different types of IPAs. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be all, it's going to be all across the map. I think this is one advantage that brewers have over say, you know, either bakers or uh, chefs, you know, which are two other professions I feel are very closely related, you know, in the fact that, you know, a baker or a chef, you know, they're, they're creative people, but they're tied into a particular style based on where they're at. You know, like you, you, you wouldn't expect to go into Spago's and find them doing, you know, the most amazing Chinese food, you know, on a whim. But brewers, it seems like, unless your brewery is really, really tied into some sort of identity, like we are a German brewery, that brewers get to just play wherever creativity wants to take them. Yeah, we definitely haven't like pegged ourselves that, you know, a, a lot of our, our, our theme and culture that we're building in our brewery, um, you know, it's 1849, it's when they discovered gold up here and, and so it's kind of that, you know, kind of old turn of the century feel that is, is our goal. You know, that's the concept and whatnot, but the beers, you know, so I'm going to be doing a, a steam beer, which is going to be nice um, because that was, you know, a traditional beer that was made up in gold country at California common. And, um, you know, of course we'll be doing a light lager beer, you know, um, refreshing, easy to drink, uh, kind of that crossover beer for a lot of folks. I don't know if it'll be a German pills or a Czech pills or a Mexican lager yet. You know, we might just try a couple different ones and see what our customers, listen to our customers, see what they want, see what they, see what they enjoy as well. And then if they want something different than the brewers want, we'll just run what we want as a special, you know, I mean, that sort of a thing. Old, old school, old school. Yeah, the, the brewer special, <laughs> aka the pilot batch, aka don't take it away from me. I like this exactly. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's going to be really organic and um, definitely, you know, focused on our local community, focused and listening to um, you know what they're what they're enjoying and what they're asking for, and 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 also trying to make some new creative styles that they might you know might not even know about and see if they like them. Well, let's get back to the book. How uh, you know? Obviously, you have the session beer chops. So how does the book come about? 
Well, you know, the Bruce publication reached out to me a couple of years ago, um, asked me to write it. I decided that would you know, be something I would like to do. My father was an author. He was a sports writer uh, for Chicago Tribune and also uh, authored um, The Cubs of 69. And so I thought it would be a really nice challenge. So, and they have a great editing team over at Brewers Publication. They really helped me a lot on uh, the technical way of writing a book and helped me organize. But you know, I you know came up with an outline and kind of what I would like to get out to the public, the you know the brewing public and the craft beer enthusiast community on some ideas I have about session beer, about the culture, about um, uh, how to brew them, how um, some some of the things I learned over the years or I should say the decades. And then, you know, I did a large recipe section. So uh, both the professional brewing staff and the home brewing staff had some, you know, tasty nuggets to play with um, in their own breweries or kitchens. I was going to say, when I picked up the book, the, the first thing that I noticed was, oh man, there's a lot of recipes in here. There's a lot of different ideas to, to take on. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're all, you know, it really demonstrates the diversity of what exactly session beer is. Session beer is so much more than just one thing. It can be, you know, German, German, uh, vice beer, um, dry Irish stout, you know, it can be a, a, a ghost. Um, you can make a lot of different types of session beers. The, the key ingredient though, it, it, it must be, it must be lower in the alcohol range where I just went ahead and honored the Brewers Association definition, which I actually kind of believe in as well, 5% ABV or below. There's some debate here and there on, oh, it, that's too high. It should be 4.5. It should be 4. You know, I'm not going to get in an arm wrestling competition about that. I, I think I think that you can drink copious amounts of beer, 5% or below throughout a day. You know, you're intermixing it maybe with some food or some walking around town. They go down pretty easy. But what no one can really argue about is to be a session beer, it has to be made higher quality and it has to be drinkable. You, you've got to want another one. You know, you can make a beer that's 4.5% ABV, ABV and you can shove it full of yarrow, whatnot. And you can drink it and be like, wow, that was interesting. It was low in alcohol and it was, and, and it was high quality. But, you know, that flavor of the yarrow was, just, it was a bit much for me, or I, I just don't want another one. That's not a session beer. That's just a low alcohol beer made with yarrow that's interesting and good for one, one pintful. You have to want another one. And so it has to have, that's the kind of elusiveness about session beer. Um, it's got to have the components where you really want to just say, you know what? Hey, thanks a lot, bartender. Can I just get another one of the same? flavorful yet not so flavorful that it interferes with as you said drinkability yeah and I, maybe we should change that word so, so so flavorful absolutely high in quality absolutely but not so intense in any one component where it interferes with drinkability Longtime listeners of the podcast will realize that we're dancing around the question that i usually ask brewers which is omitting the word balance describe your brewing philosophy omitting the word balance, describe my brewing <laughs> philosophy. Okay. Um, well, I start with the end in mind. Um, when I decide to put pen to paper and design, um, design a beer, I like as a brewer, my brewing philosophy is I first get the vision of what I want to design. For instance, one of the best examples of that is I would say, well, I should probably use a session beer, but let's just say, you know, a, um, a Saison. Maybe I, I envision what I want to be drinking you know, on my patio, I envision the glass where it's in. I, I envision what it looks like. Is it turbid? Is it 
What kind of clarity does it have? Is it hazy? What, what does the head look like? What, then what does it smell like? Um, and then what does it taste like? So I, I, I envision all those components and then I work backwards. Well, to get to there, it's going to have to be. So it's, it's like really kind of, I want to drive to Oklahoma from California. Now, some people will just open up Google, Google Maps and say, start and start driving on the blue line. But a lot of folks kind of, kind of map it out when it's a long road. They kind of map out, okay, well, I'm going to have to get on this highway. I'm going to have to get on this highway. Eventually, I'm going to be here. So they know where they're going. So my brewing philosophy is I kind of like to have an idea of where I'm going um, prior to starting brewing. Now, that doesn't mean things don't change along the way. And often they do, and you have to get creative, and you have to get resourceful and manipulate things. And, and, and something might come out that you didn't quite envision, but you like and keep. But I always have a, some type of a roadmap before I start um, before I start the design process. And, and as far as philosophy goes, without saying the word balance, um, I like to make beer that I like to drink. <laughs> I think that's a perfectly reasonable answer. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple, but I don't usually like to make beer I don't don't necessarily like to drink a lot of, um, or drink at all. And there's plenty of beers out there that I don't really like to drink, but I, I, I feel bad to even say that. It doesn't mean they're bad beers at all. It's just, everybody has, well, Drew, do you have a beer out there you don't like to drink, but that somebody else might? Yeah. I think for the most part, I'm not a huge fan of like Rodalk beer. I mean, I've had, I've had some of them that are great, but most of the time I'm just like, mm. That's a good example. Have you been to Bamberg? I haven't, which is part of the reason why I know I shouldn't say that. Well, you know, that's the only place I really enjoyed having multiple pints of, of Rausch beer. Um, but yeah, they're very difficult um, to make. And, you know, and I usually as well in America when I'm at a tap house, don't search them out. You know, for me, I'm not a huge fan of kettle sours. Now that I've made true sour beers, and when I say true, that's kind of a rude statement, really. It's more of like, let's say old world sour beers where, you know, they're aged in oak and they take, you know, six to nine months to 12 months to 18 months. I've I've toured through Belgium several times um, and drank some amazing sour beers over there. Um, I really seek out the complexity that comes along with a very well-made sour beer. Um, I've made kettle sours um, and the simplicity of them and the uh, one dimensionalism of them is off putting to me. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. I'm like, Hmm, okay, that's nice. I can have maybe, maybe 10 ounces in a nice glass or something, but then I move on to something else. But if I find a really nice, dynamic, complex sour beer that has lots of different components, usually incorporating Britannomyces in some respect, and, you know, maybe some uh, various bacteria, not just the lactobacillus, um, and it all comes together beautifully in a nice, nice glassware, I can be seen drinking multiple pints of that with over cheese and, you know, a nice plate of food. Given the fact that, yeah, that just straight shot of lactic acid that you get from most of those kettle sours. I think it's very telling that if you turn around, you see like almost all those kettle sours that are coming out. They, you know, they have additional flavor components that are being added to them. Like here's our fruit uh, addition to it just right. to give some uh, something else. Because yeah, a straight shot of lactic acid is not, it's not a, a terribly interesting or pleasant thing. Right. So yeah, I, have, I haven't been uh, wowed. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not a great kettle sour out there that just is, you know, it's just waiting, waiting for me to taste and be like, okay, all right, this, this was done really nicely. But for the general part, I, 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 I those aren't the ones I gravitate towards. Yeah. And I'm, I'm about the same way about, um, 
most people's attempt to do India Pale lagers. I know there, I know there are really great hoppy lagers out there, but most of the things that people are selling as IPLs, I don't like. Yeah, you know, I haven't drank a lot of them. I, I usually on a tap board, I don't go, ooh, I want to try that, you know. But that, yeah, that's an interesting new. Everyone's trying to do an IPA something in there. Well, <laughs> you, you know, the, it's those magical, magical three letters that equals sales right now. Mm-hmm. Actually, let's do let's do kind of a a a quick rundown because I think most people just because of beer culture and its origins, if you say the word session beer or the phrase session beer to somebody. If they have any sort of knowledge about it, I think almost everybody immediately runs to the British because, after all, that's where that notion kind of comes from, uh, at least that term. Let's let's walk through a couple of different cultures and, and see what's your favorite sort of session beer out of that culture. So let's start with the classic, the, the British. My favorite session beer would, would have to be just an extremely well-made, ordinary bitter um, on a cask that I think, you know, they that's where it came from. I a really wonderful made uh, ordinary bitter uh, with a really nice, you know, some Maris Otter malt, some English pale malt, um, restrained hops, and you know, not fruit forward hops with just a mild bitterness in the back. You know, around four percent, four point five. You know, four point three. They usually hover maybe four with a you know poured on a nice beer engine. You know, served properly by a good publican. That's, it's great. You know, of course, you, you know, in the setting, obviously, of an English pub always helps as well. So. <laughs> and, now, and now for the controversial question, with or without sparkler? With or without the sparkler? Yep. Well, I would, I would say without. <laughs> like I said, the, 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 those could possibly be a fighting choice in, in the UK. And I think for me, I'm like a nice 3.5 to 3.8 mild. Mm. Well, that is a beautiful beer, isn't it? Actually, you know, with a mile, I'll even go down to three, too. Oh, yeah. And, and to do to, to be served one that's made excellent is is always very, very impressive. Yeah, that's the reason I make my own. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then uh, what about, uh, say, Belgium? Yeah, which nobody ever thinks of as a session beer country, but I know for a fact there are lots of sessionable beers. Absolutely. There are a lot of sessional beers there. Um, I, I would have to say one of my favorite sessional beers there right now is um and i is terrace bulba and terrace bulba is made by brewery de la seine he's a uh brewer friend of mine yvonne De yvonne debates he makes this beautiful it's it's got i don't know the yeast strain he uses but it's it's saison like um it's very dry very refreshing the hops are restrained they initially made it, it they made it um to refresh themselves because they drink copious amounts of beer and they didn't want to be hung over for their next day of brewing, which is also the um, founding reason why the monasteries made singles was to refresh the monks and you know, have restraint. Obviously monks have lots of restraints in all sorts of areas of their lives. And so they would get this per DM beer. It was 10 ounces a day um, of this lower alcohol Abbey style beer. So I would say one of my, my first, favorite styles over there right now is is, is specifically Terrace Bulba by Brewery de la Seine. Um, but in a general sense, it, general sense, it's that old world, you know, four to five percent farmhouse saison is is really my favorite. My second being would be like a number six, or it's also called extra. You can get this this style of lower Abbey style beer. It's usually golden in color, 
at the patio at West Vetland. Sorry, it's very hard for me to say West Vetland. And also West Mall makes one as well, but you can only get it at the tap room. They're hard to access, especially for Americans. But if you go over there, go and have a ham and cheese sandwich on the patio and, and definitely drink the the, uh, the lower alcohol offering they have. It's just absolutely beautiful. Well, and I think Chimay, Chimay's Dory, which is the black label. Okay. Has started to come over to the U.S. I see it sometimes, but it's, yeah, it's still hard to find. And that's in that same vein. And I remember sitting at the monastery at Mersu, mm-hmm. you know, up on that big bluff overlooking, uh, overlooking the river, uh, Meuse, and sitting in their little cafeteria with a stoneware mug of the potter's beer Ooh. and their cheese that they made there and the bread that they made there. Yeah. That's a, that's a hell of a memory. That sounds like, yeah, that sounds like heaven for sure. Absolutely. All right. And then, of course, uh, no beer discussion would be complete without also talking about uh, Germany. Right. Absolutely. You know, which I just got back from. I was up in Berlin and then down in Munich. I would have to say, oh, that's, I would have to say just an incredibly made uh, Hellas would probably be my favorite, you know, and I, I, I love the Hellas style. It's, it's, it's got such great history and you know made properly and beautifully it's just it's just a wonderful session beer and and for me i think um i always gravitate towards if it's fresh if it's in good condition uh, a hef like a good like a good bavarian hef uh, particularly the lower alcohol ones when those are when those are fresh and they haven't had a chance to oxidize or stale out oh yeah they're amazing and you know i it was it's it was a close call to say hellas or you know, the, the, uh, Bavarian Hefe Weizen. It, it, it's hard to see which one's number one in my book, but it's the, yeah, that Hefe is, uh, when made well, like I said, like, um, is, is right there. It's a lead contender. That's a tour of the world's big brewing cultures in terms of session beers. But I think for, you know, the, our listeners and, and the people at home who are trying to tackle their session beers, what, what are your tips? How do you, how do you tackle making a session beer, particularly because I think the two things that almost everybody who isn't a big session beer fan thinks of with them is that they're either, you know, watery, they lack body, that sort of thing, or they're just boring. What I would say um, to anyone trying to make a session beer and not be watery, thin, or boring is uh, some, some believe, some brewers believe that if you leave, you know, kind of some residual sweetness behind, you know, maybe you don't, you know, leave you leave the ending gravity a little bit higher than you would normally. That's going to build body. I would I would definitely shy away from that technique. A lot of times, knowing what not to do is almost imp- as just as important or more important than knowing what to do. So I definitely like to ferment my uh, session beers out to a normal ending gravity. So I don't leave residual sweetness to, to build mouthfeel. If I want to build mouthfeel and try to shy, you know, build it so it's not watery or thin, I I use a lot of different malt tricks or tricks or such as like I like to use a lot of Munich malt or Vienna malt. You know, about ten to twenty percent in a lot of my session beers. It's it's a wonderful way to build some body. A lot of the session beers I make don't call for caramel malt, you know, and um, the Munich malt has great fermentability. So you can even make 100% Munich 10 Levy Bond Munich malt beer. And it does uh, a world of good for mouthfeel. The other thing I like to, I would suggest is um, a calcium, the use of calcium chloride. And it doesn't go across the board, but in a general sense for a lot of your English styles. I like to use a lot of calcium chloride um, to build my calcium levels, both in my mash and in my kettle. It leaves uh, for a larger mouthfeel and not as dry a finish. That helps, you know, build the body of the beer as well as some of the you know unique malts you can put in there. 
I definitely try not to be too heavy handed with my bitterness. I like to keep my bitterness in line. Obviously, that depends on the style of session beer I'm making, whether it's a session IPA versus a Schwartz or a Vienna or an American premium lager. I mean, the the IBUs are going to vary greatly, but you'll rarely find that I design more than 45 IBUs on the top end of any session beer, because if one attribute overpowers, then, you know, you usually don't want another one, but specifically about body, having your water correct and having your pHs on really good brewing practice, which goes for brewing any type of beer. It just becomes that much more important in brewing a session, making sure your first wort and your wort pH is in order. And if that means acidifying some of your foundation water, because you're using a lot of light malts, and not a lot of darker malts, then and so be it. And making sure you know where your pHs are and using a very good healthy uh, yeast that takes off in a good temperature. And so just kind of the same dynamics you would for any beer, but even that much more important for brewing a session. Um, making sure that fermentation is nice and healthy, your diacetyl rest is complete, you've given it some maturation time to um, deal with any off flavors that could have been put off, like acetaldehyde uh, through fermentation and don't take up any air, clarify it if necessary, and you get it in, in good quality. So I mean, that might not be specific to session beer brewing, but that those would be my tips is, is, is your, knowing your water profile, knowing your pHs, healthy fermentation, building body through uh, Munich malt, Vienna malt, also, you know, a little higher mash temperature always helps and building some unfermentable sugars to help build body. I, but I'm not, I'm not a big advocate of using dextrin malts. I don't usually utilize a lot of dextrin malts, uh, but I will mash in at a higher temperature. So when you say a higher temperature, are we talking what, like 155 ish? Yeah, exactly. It's about where most of my 4% ABV beers mashed in in, in Utah. Any, any particular sort of yeast strains? Do you find any, do you have any preference on in terms of yeast for this? You don't want a yeast that attenuates too low. You know, if you get down into the, like the one Plato, one point five Plato, it's uh, it gets it's really hard with a four and a half percent beer. You know, you, having like you know, at least two point five Plato in there does help, and and that by no means isn't a sweet ending gravity. You start talking about three and a half and up, sure, you know, but uh, but if you get down one eight, it's 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 very difficult to build a lot of body when you dry it out too much. So when looking at your yeast selection, once again, it all depends on the style. If you're going to make a Kolsch, I highly suggest using a Kolsch yeast. A lot of times people try to emulate a Kolsch with whatever yeast they kind of have on hand. Um, and I wouldn't suggest that. I think having a specific Kolsch yeast is really important as well as a specific alt yeast when making an alt beer, um, which can also be really nice session beers. Um, you can make them at 5% and restrain the bitterness and put some really nice, unique, both caramel or, you know, bready malt characteristics in it and come up with a really nice drinkable, um, alt beer. I used a lot. I used 11, 1187. It was a Y yeast number. I also used 1056. I mean, a lot of people use 1056. I think it's a fine yeast to use just when selecting your yeast, be careful. It's not just a super attenuator. In terms of the saisons, since we talked about those, and of course I'm a big saison knucklehead. I think one of the conf- the hard parts is if you're trying to really go for that table saison thing, you're fighting the natural tendency of the yeast to go really dry, which not only throws off what your original gravity has to be in order to in order to get under that five percent limit, but also yeah, it plays havoc with your body, which is one of the nice things about like the French saison strains and those glycerols that they throw. Mm-hmm. But but then again, I I don't like the the 
and they're not as saisonny to me. My suggestion on that is to use a really poor attenuating yeast that's really flavorful um, that maybe only goes down 50 60 percent of the way and just stalls the just think of the the you know the most pain in the hoo-ha right that you can imagine you know a lot of people don't realize that the the 75 80 percent maybe even higher of all the phenols and esters produced by your yeast choice they're produced within the first 40 percent of fermentation you can develop those gorgeous flavors. And if it stalls out, there's nothing wrong and there's nothing, uh, no one should feel weird about throwing another yeast in there, like a lager yeast, to just finish it. And now you've developed these beautiful phenols and you know nice flavors, but you're not you know waiting three months to see if it ever gets down to the terminal gravity. And you can then kind of, you know, pick a lager yeast that you know finishes where you like it and produce a nice saison that way. It's, it's, I, I, I use two yeast strains often in, in my past brewing life in, in other breweries. And I, I think it's a fun, fun thing that a lot of people don't remember as uh, part of our toolbox as brewers. Yeah, and I think Belgian beers definitely almost always benefit from sort of dual pitching. Sure, yeah. I mean, if you look at those Belgian beers, I mean, very few of them are going to be mon- monoculture. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, Jen, uh, before before we leave the, the topic of session beers, is there anything else that you think that we need to, uh, to cover so that people know exactly you know, what to do to make a great session beer or where to find them? I can't tell you enough about quality and the quality of your process. Uh, and I preach it throughout the book. I really do. First and foremost, if the beer is not high in quality, it's not going to be sessionable. So you have to make sure your processes, your cleanliness, your sanitation is, is in line. If it's not in line, don't try to make a session beer. Um, you can, there's a lot of flavors, a lot of mistakes that one can make, but if they make enough alcohol, they're harder to find. So, but when you're not making a lot of alcohol in your beer, they're right there and there's nothing to hide behind. So first and foremost, make sure your processes are nice and tight and your cleanliness is, is spot on. Uh, second of all, um, don't go too crazy with the bitterness. It's hard not to sometimes, but it will not serve a lower alcohol beer. If it's too bitter, if you're above, you know, if you're into 55, 60, you know, range, um, and you're four and a half percent alcohol, it's just, you usually don't want another one. So it's just too high a bitterness without the backbone of the alcohol. So restrain that bitterness. And also Think about how you're putting the bitterness in there. Uh, one thing I do talk about in the book is quality of bitterness, and I don't think it's talked about enough in um, our industry, is I don't think bitterness is just one thing. It's not. I think depending on where you put your IBUs in the beginning of the boil versus middle versus towards the end, there's a lot of creative things you can do to drive flavor and aroma. I love to drive aroma through dry hopping. I love to drive flavor about 15 minutes to end a boil. But the majority of my BUs are, I, I build at the beginning and in, right in the middle of the boil, kind of more of a classic way of hopping. I'm going to fool around at my new, new brewing company with a lot of this Whirlpool stuff a lot of folks are doing just to kind of revisit why I formed these opinions. My experience have been with the, the 4% beers that I was making in Utah, and once again, they weren't five percent; they were four percent ABV. You know, if if I put all of if I put a majority of my IBUs towards the end of the boil, I got a much harsher bitterness. It became almost astringent, like that. It was not welcoming. You didn't want another pint when it was like that. When I when I had my bitterness more up front, 
and then drove flavor and aroma what, through dry hopping and maybe through a little bit towards 15 minutes to end the boil. It was a much better experience as far as the bitterness goes. Well, great. And I think that sounds like a wonderful place to leave. Obviously, guys, go out there. We'll include links in the uh, show notes. Uh, you can go buy uh, Jennifer's uh, Session Beer book from our good friends at Brewers Publications. And in September uh, 1849, up in Grass Valley, California, right? Yes, 1849 Brewing Company. It, we're hoping for a September opening date. Um, our brew house gets installed uh, July 2nd, so it's it's all coming together right now and really exciting. There is, Drew, one last thing I want to mention about uh, making a, a, a great session beer is the ending pH of your wort is extraordinarily important. So when you're bringing your wort over from your mash tun to your kettle, you really need to make sure you're not rising above 5.75. Those harsh, astringent uh, flavors from the tannins that you can extract towards the end of runover greatly affect the pleasurability or not pleasurability of a session beer. If they're astringent in any way, it's, it's very hard to want another one. And the best way to create astringency is through running your pH too high on your last runnings. That's uh, that's really important to keep in line. So I don't know what uh, the homebrewers have today as far as access to pH meters and what people are spending on pH meters, but it's a good investment. I would, I would definitely not just I would definitely not just trust strips. That's that's that that's a big that's a big point. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And uh, everybody else, make sure that you go find your favorite session beer. Remember, nowadays that we have all of these local little breweries, everybody has the freedom now to go into a tap room. You're going to be more likely to actually find some session beers in the tap room than you might be on the market because of sometimes the sales issues around them. But go enjoy the session beers because you know what? You don't need to get schnockered when you're just having a couple of beers. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Drew, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at session beers. Remember, folks, there's more to beer than booze and bombast. There's little things like flavor and enjoying that third glass without feeling the rolling tides of the world slide by your toes. So get out there, make beers to drink and share. Jen's giving you the tips. If you need help getting started, we have a ton of session beers on experimentalbrew.com. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brews, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew form out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this very, very last few days is Habitat for Humanity. You know, helping Americans build homes and have a good sturdy home to live in. Make sure you get those pledges into Patreon by the end of June, and we'll make sure that Habitat for Humanity gets a little gift from you. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. Brew Files.